everybody and welcome back to Witch Fix. Today we're going to be looking at a non-fiction book. I feel like I haven't talked about one of these in so long and it's mainly because I suck at reading non-fiction books. They just take a lot of effort for me to get into, to stay engaged with and they really bugger up my like reading rhythm. So they put me off reading for a while and it, it's taken me a while to finish this one. But, but we're going to get into it. It's called The Crooked Path, An Introduction to Traditional Witchcraft. I believe this may have been in one of my What I've Been Buying hauls a while ago. And it's by, uh, it's by Keldon. No last name or no first name. So there we go. And it's a Llewellyn title. Uh, so this is meant to be a book about traditional witchcraft as opposed to Wicca. And I have mixed feelings about it. So let's jump in. As usual, everything is just going to be my opinion and very little of it is going to be like obviously based in fact, um, just like how I'm responding to the book. That being said, let's start with the foreword. So we get talked to a little bit about the history of witchcraft and it says um, on the first page of the foreword at the bottom, the first and thereafter most prominent such brand of coven witchcraft to emerge into public consciousness was of course that promulgated promulgated i have no idea by gerard garner uh, event uh, evidently this was a version uh, evidently his was a vision of witchcraft for the masses and so gardner set about reworking and building upon the possibly fragmentary form of witchcraft into which he had been initiated in the 1930s drawing upon his interest in romantic era paganism freemasonry and ceremonial occultism gardner was able to forge a beautiful and workable system of celebratory pagan witchcraft for the new Aquarian age. So here we have sort of the, the introduction. This is from the, the Gemma Gary introduction to the book and it, it talks about a wicker a little bit and the difference between it and traditional witchcraft. So that's basically sort of where the book is coming from. It's talking about leaving behind that sort of wicked understanding of witchcraft and moving in towards a, a different one which uh, purports to be based on something pre-wicker. It, uh, if, if you see what I mean. And then in the actual introduction by the author, we see this paragraph. In writing The Crooked Path, an introduction to traditional witchcraft, it was my goal to create the book I wish I would have had when first learning the ways of traditional witchcraft, a book that cuts through the pretense and presents the material in a practical down-to-earth manner. It's also my goal to write a book on traditional witchcraft that discusses its relationship with Wicca in a fair and balanced way. Having spent continual a considerable time as a researcher and a participating member of both paths, it's been my long-standing desire to dismantle stereotypes and misinformation while also working towards creating a better understanding of both Wicca and traditional witchcraft. So that's quite a lofty goal uh, and one that I am really interested in. Um, it was kind of novel to me to see someone speak about Wicca positively in a modern book because if you go back to like the books from like the 1990s and the 2000s they don't really talk about wicca at all because it's just assumed that by witchcraft you mean wicca but then in more modern books there's been a movement away from wicca and people tend to look down on it and obviously it's something that i've practiced myself and still use elements of it so it is annoying to me when i find books that are talking about a subject that i'm interested in but they're doing it through the lens of slagging off something that i have previously been interested in you know it's just it gets, gets you down to read to be honest and it also makes me feel like the author is either very insecure about their own teachings because they're trying to slag off you know other people and say well mine isn't like that mine is better um and also you know you can't really talk about one thing without 
talking about the other side of it and that is very much how I see sort of Wicca and traditional witchcraft as kind of two sides of the same practice both are types of witchcraft both uh, originate in sort of the same places and sources it's just one has been reimagined in one way and one in another so uh, I was looking forward to getting into the book and reading about it however I will say that the author talking about their like background in Wicca makes the book make a lot more sense because there's definitely a lot of Wiccan stuff in this book and that is kind of the main thing that I didn't enjoy about it is that it seemed to be coming at reconstructing traditional witchcraft around core elements of Wicca so it was sort of neither one nor the other but the bastard child of both and that kind of rubbed me up the wrong way and meant that certain sections felt not necessarily inaccurate to me because obviously they're what the author's doing it can't be inaccurate if it's their own practice that they're describing to you but felt not what I was looking for and not authentic to my vision for my own like future practice so we, we didn't particularly vibe in that way moving on uh, we learn what makes witchcraft traditional and the author's sort of perspective on this is that traditions aren't traditional just because they've been around for a long time traditions are traditional because you've been doing them like you can make a new tradition now if you wanted to like say hey friend let's get together every sunday for a cup of coffee and they're like sweet i love coffee and i love spending time with you that's a new tradition just because you haven't been doing it since you met them 10 years ago doesn't make it invalid or worthless it just means that it's new and you've just started doing it and although like they talk about how long-standing traditions obviously garner a sense of importance like to use my analogy if you kept going to the same coffee shop over and over again every sunday you sat in this same exact spot every time it became like your spot you had like the same order constantly you would build up this sense of ritual and observance and if you couldn't do part of that like if someone else was sitting in your chair or if suddenly that shop closed down it would feel like a, a kind of personally very unnerving to you that you suddenly couldn't observe this tradition in the way that you had previously done as opposed to if you'd just done it for two weeks in a row and then it was gone um so basically they say on page nine traditions are not static but rather fluid in nature they are living breathing things that are added to and subtracted from each time they pass hands continually shifting and growing that's how traditions are kept alive change is important because if a tradition becomes stagnant sooner or later it will become outdated and eventually die off altogether moreover traditions are not created in a vacuum instead they almost always arise from or in response to other already established customs when it comes to witchcraft this means that there is no pure tradition that has developed and remained uninfluenced by other external sources so I, I kind of agree with that there's lots of books out there and lots of writers and influencers who like to pretend that there have always been witches and that when witchcraft was illegal they just hid really well and they kept practicing and handing down their traditions exactly the same forever and ever right down to you know sally greenleaf and her tiktok page right now i don't believe that and i view that with a huge amount of skepticism even if there was a family that was able to hide these traditions and have them keep going people would have changed them so for example like my family we have 
or used to have a Christmas tree with an angel on the top same angel every year same Christmas tree we always put the decorations in the same place like the same piece of tinsel goes on the same lamp and then we've moved and then we've changed little bits of furniture around so we don't have those things anymore so now we've just started decorating in a different way and when that angel finally its head will come off because it's very wobbly guys we'll just get a new one or glue it back on and then it won't be exactly the same but it will change it changes a little bit every year like when we move to a different house it'll change again when like some of us aren't around anymore it will change again you can't stop traditions from changing and you can't keep them the same forever even something as small and inconsequential as how you put tinsel up is going to change and so obviously if your family's moving around if there's new people coming into it they're going to bring their own ideas their own practices it's not going to stay the same forever especially if you haven't written it down which they almost never have so i agree with that section of the book and it's sort of ideas about tradition very much vibed with my own on page 10 we do talk a little bit about the witch trials and i had kind of a weird moment with this because it talks about the witch trials and the confessions that the accused were given and it says it is not the factual merit of the confessions that interest traditional witches but rather the rich body of folklore that they encapsulated and have further generated throughout time regardless of whether or not any of the accused were genuine witches it would appear that the elements of witchcraft contained within their confessions, use of magical spells, ownership of familiar spirits, meetings of witches known as Sabbaths, and allyship with the devil, originated from some pre-existing folklore. These elements can be found throughout countless individual confessions all across Europe and America, hinting at an already well-developed set of beliefs regarding witchcraft and magic. And I read that and I was like, that is definitely one way that you could interpret those facts. If you say, like, yeah, a lot of witches have really similar confessions across different continents, these have got to be based on something that came before and that they have prior knowledge of. That's one way you could interpret those. Another way to interpret those facts would be that, you know, people have published books and pamphlets in the Manius Maleficorum, and they went around basically telling people what they were guilty of and then shoving red hot pokers into them until they repeated it back to them so they could say, oh yeah, she's guilty, let's kill her. So it's sort of like which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it some pre-existing understanding of witchcraft that led to all this stuff? Or was it lonely, horny priests who were like, yeah, she goes and has sex with the devil in the woods the day, bitch? And then they just told a bunch of people about it and they started killing people. So it felt like to me that was an assumption being made or like um, a conclusion being drawn, shall we say, from evidence. But that is not the only conclusion that you could draw from that. And sort of down the line in the book, a lot of the stuff that they were talking about, like having familiars and the ways in which rituals and stuff were worked and the devil and all of this stuff. I was sort of reading it and thinking okay this is what witchcraft looks like if you try and reconstruct it from the witch trials but what would happen if we tried to reconstruct judaism from nazi propaganda i don't think it would be a very clear or positive image i don't think it would be accurate at all so why is evidence being used at the witch trials to murder innocent people being taken as evidence of some practice that was actually genuine um, so that was my first wobble with the book, and that and the sort of Wiccan thing became my sort of two main gripes.
At the end of chapter one on page 16, there is a, a good exercise. This is the first exercise in the book. And it says personally defining traditional witchcraft. And it basically says in your journal, respond to the following question. Do you agree with the definition of traditional witchcraft provided at the end of this chapter? If yes, in what ways does it resonate with your own experiences, feelings or ideas? If no, how would you personally define traditional witchcraft? And I liked this exercise because it's open. It doesn't say, like, I think this was a problem that I had with the Keeping Her Keys Hecate book. It doesn't say, we've just learned about this thing. Tell me how that thing is now important to you, even though you only read about it six minutes ago. This is like, here is what I think. Now, the exercise is for you to think about what you think. It's passing it over to you. It's an actual exercise in which you can participate and not like an exercise in just agreeing with the book. So I really like that. And a lot of the other exercises are similar. They're very open-ended. They're like, have your own thoughts now. This is thinking time. So I did appreciate that. Although by the time you get to the end of the book, it is very much like now reflect back on everything you've learned and do the initiation ritual, which, you know, I, I, is not necessarily like where you're going to be by the end of this one book. There's been a short section on the differences between Wicca and traditional witchcraft, which is only a couple of pages. And then we go into the basics of magic. And this is where I have my third wobble. Um, because it sort of starts talking about visualisation. It says on page 34, under the magical process, one, determining your magical intention, two, visualising your magical intention, three, raising or challenging, uh, channeling the necessary magical power, and four, projecting your combined intent and power. And that, to me, is a very, dare I say it, Wiccan approach to magic. Although there is a lot of it around in kind of contemporary, like, we're not Wiccans, we're just witches, witchcraft. But a lot of that is very much derived from Wicca, so potato, potato. My issue with it was that when I think about sort of traditional witchcraft and, like, what people used to practice, and although, obviously, we've read that bit, you know, traditions aren't just valuable because of how long they've been going but when i think about traditional witchcraft the witchcraft that existed before wicca i think of it as being very physical very doing and things very sympathetic magic creating poppets stabbing them um <laughs> various things like you know putting animals into the foundations of your house to protect it you do these things but you don't necessarily visualize what you want to happen when you do it you're not holding an image of bethany from down the block in your head as you're making the poppet to my mind you're making it and it's the making of it and incorporating magical materials that you've gathered that have importance from the natural world from you know bethany's garbage i don't know why i have it out for this woman but um incorporating those things that makes it magical and not visualization or yoga breathing to raise energy that to me is a very modern idea and so it was kind of disappointing to me that so much of this book was about that style of magic and about that style of sort of other world travel so much of it is about like path working or path working by another name meditation visualization and it's not a lot about the practical aspects of you know digging some mud out of somebody's footprint and making a poppet out of it or going out into nature to forage for ingredients. It felt a little bit sanitised and a little bit modern and a little bit akin to 
a lot of Wicca books. In chapter five, we get into like rituals and like ceremonies, and we learn about the simple ecstatic ritual. And that to me is something that is I'm very humble with. That to me speaks to like traditional witchcraft. Is not just repeating the same old rituals in a ceremonial way, which to me is like ceremonial magic also in Wicca, but just doing a ritual and going with the flow and maybe inventing words on the spot or just doing what feels like it needs to be done. It doesn't have to be complicated, it just has to be from the heart and authentic and rooted in you and that's what gives it its power. Um, and that to me is again something very traditional witchcraft, people weren't writing this stuff down they didn't learn it from anywhere it's just the sort of thing that you have to do and feel for yourself like it feels right that I would use this in this way and that this is how I would call to this specific spirit which I can kind of sense in this place it's not like I'm going to put this candle here and this candle there and then walk around this circle four times with my knife up and then sit down and then burn this and do this in this order that to me feels like more ceremonial and more to do with wicker so for the book to say that at the beginning of chapter five and then go straight into on page 58 here are the three rituals of traditional wicca uh, of traditional witchcraft um it felt kind of disconnected and it's like you can just rework these however you want but it's like yeah you can rework the sandwich however you want as long as it's still got you know some of these core components in it that you cannot avoid having like bread and butter that was a weird analogy. But basically, we go into the compass round, and we're told that this is a ritual of traditional witchcraft. And it's basically kind of casting a circle, but called something different and done in a slightly different way. Uh, and we're, what we're given is actually um, Robert Cochrane's layout for his compass round on page 60. Um, Robert Cochrane was initiated into Wicca and then went off and kind of did his own thing for a bit. That was a very specific history lesson. Well done, Sarah. But Again, it has that kind of grounding in Wicca. This is basically just, let's cast a circle, but in a slightly different format. And it's basically like you do a circle of salt, a circle of ash, a circle of wine. This in also incorporates the stang or like forked stick stuck into the ground. Although we're told that we can do this indoors, but what are you going to stand your stick in? Also, sprinkling salt on the ground outside is just a bad idea in general. Um, but yeah, the, the second a book is like, here is a ritual you need to learn. I'm like, ah, but do I? I mean, it does start talking off about like how magical circles have been used by lots of different people. Yes, I can get on board with that. But to then say, this is how we're going to lay our compass round and then insist that you do that at the start of every following exercise felt a little bit dictatorial to me. Um, then the next ritual was treading the mill, uh, which is to alter consciousness, basically. It's sort of like walking or like rhythmic movement to put yourself in a state of altered consciousness i had no problem with that one because it didn't really like tell us how to do it or in what way it was like now you can do this in a lot of different ways that's fine and then the third one is the housel which is basically communion thanksgiving uh right of wine and cakes type territory uh, where you gather around and you fill your beaker up with wine and toast so as you can see like those similarities to wicca and again it's very much chicken and the egg are those things in wicca because they did exist and therefore are part of traditional witchcraft and they were added into wicca later or were they invented as wicca and then transmuted into this form of traditional witchcraft because 
of Wicca coming first. It's it doesn't bother me one way or the other, but it just began to feel like I was reading a beginner book about Wicca because there was so much in there that I was like, yeah, this is familiar. And the fact that the author never really sort of said, this is the same as this thing in Wicca, made me think that maybe they genuinely thought it was different, but I, I just couldn't see how it was different. There's then a really interesting section on spellcraft in, on page 73, which is adapting spells and charms from folklore, basically just taking things from myths and legends. I would argue also you can do this from like television series, like what are incredibly popular television series now, like, you know, Charmed and Buffy the Vampire's Lair, if not modern folklore that lots of people have engaged with over time, very much like folklore, and, you know, adapting them to your own purpose. We have some stuff on charm bags, like how-to sort of things, I wasn't really here for it, I'm just here for information about traditional wicker, not like how to make a charm bag, which is, it seems a little bit basic to me. And then we get into the Witch Father and the Witch Mother, chapter 7. This is very similar to the Goddess and the God for me, I'm not going to lie. Again, a lot of religions, a lot of cultures, a lot of folklore around the world has this idea of like a divine or cosmic mother and father, so that's not purely Wiccan. And I did like some of the sort of talks given specifically about the witch father, I think really helped me to understand the whole idea of the god more um, in terms of his like seasonal growth and changing. Uh, but I did have a little bit of a, a wobble again on page 86 where it says, Today many witches adamantly reject the idea of the devil having anything to do with the craft, and they will insist that he is nothing more than a Christian construct, a bogeyman who has no place within the concept of within the practice of witchcraft. The devil of folklore is not akin to the Christian concept of Satan, at least not quite. Without a doubt, this is an extremely controversial topic and one that is deeply ensconced in preconceived notions. It's certainly true that many witches do not work with the devil, but this is not true for all practitioners. So far, so good. I'm agreed on this. Uh, and then it says... As we've hopefully come to understand, there are no absolutes in the world of witchcraft. It's doubtful that there was ever a unified god of the witches, just as today we all work with and experience the divine in different ways, including not at all. However, instead its modern revival, the devil seems to have been an intrinsic part of the craft. Looking back through historical and folkloric accounts of witches, you aren't likely to find stories of them working with deities like Pan... Oh, I always screw this one up. Sir Nunos. I apologise. Hun or any of the other popular horn goddesses of today's paganism. Instead, you will find them feasting, dancing, and partnering with the devil. See above, re horny priests. Um, I agree that there are witches who work with the devil. I agree that aspects of how the devil looks in folklore may or not have been taken from, uh, you know, other gods or images of local deities with horns to make them sound like to demonize them maybe that happened maybe it didn't i ain't no historiologist but i think to say like again in the witch trials we found out the witches worked with the devil so clearly that's po that's possible and they did that all the time is is a little bit weird to say because obviously people who want to kill you for working with the devil are probably going to say that you work with the devil and it's not going to matter if you did or you didn't they're just gonna say it anyway so again, it's kind of like I would draw different conclusions from the same evidence that we're seeing here. And I'm not necessarily on board with it. I know that there are like Satanist witches, that's fine. There are, they don't need my permission, but 
you know, that's fine anyway. <laughs> and there are people who like look at like Lucifer as an angel and they like go with that and there's like lots of different permutations of worship and stuff. But to say that this is something that's like in traditional Wicca or in traditional witchcraft, I keep confusing those two things. I wonder why that is. Um, just seems again to be kind of drawing one conclusion from evidence that could say a number of things. Up in chapter 8 we have ancestors, familiars and fetches and we learn all about these, about like ancestor worship and stuff and again I really like this chapter because it was certified not Wicca. So the, the aspects of this book that I couldn't really easily connect to something in Wicca I really enjoyed. Um, so this like talking about ancestors and things like that and then it talks about familial ancestors on page 100 and it says they are not spirits who just belong to your family it says the term family is highly subjective and holds different meaning for each person a family may include blood relatives those people with whom you share dna family can also include individuals to whom you are not biologically related but with whom you still share close intimate bonds while traditional definitions of family may place greater emphasis on blood relatives non-biological family members are just as important if not more so in certain cases uh, and then it talks about people who were adopted um, uh, and, and things like that. I don't necessarily think it's... Uh, it, again, it kind of widens it out from, like, it doesn't have to be your blood family. But then it's like, but it does have to be, like, your legal family, like your adopted family, what have you. It doesn't really say what to do if you don't have family that would be cool with witchcraft. Family that you think you would want to call on or use in a magical way um so again it kind of it didn't go deep enough that section I, I wanted to hear more about that because i have very little like connection to my family broadly speaking and it's like well i love my grandparents very much i don't really know that they would want to be included in a pagan ritual uh, then we have land-based ancestors who are basically people that lived where you live uh, and have the same history of you and, and and where you're from. It is interesting that they talk about um, colonisation and things like that and sort of honouring the people who came before because I, the author is American. It's talking about like America and honouring the people who lived on the land before English settlers came. It specifically says English settlers, even though, you know, there were like Spanish and French people as well. But I guess Americans just hate the British moving on and then it talks about spiritual ancestors um basically the other magical practitioners other witches um and it does say that you're not ob obligated to honor all of these types of ancestors like if you wanted to leave your family out that's fine too so there we go moving forward we learn a little bit about familiars and fetch spirits which is really interesting i would definitely probably repurchase this book just to read that section again um so that's pretty cool and then we move into the other world and the overworld and this is why i'm starting to really lose interest and focus because it talks about like hedge crossing visiting the other world and the overworld but it's like if you don't believe in an upper world where the gods live and an underworld where the dead live and a middle world where people and assorted um fairy folk live you're going to feel very left out in this chapter because that's basically like 
you kind of have to believe in that for the rest of the chapter to make sense because it goes on to talk about like the people who live in all of those worlds and how to visit them and the fact that they're all on the axis mundi which is like the world tree and it's like if you don't believe in any of this stuff like at no point does it say like you're not obligated to believe in it that i can remember but a fairly big chunk of the book is devoted into like traveling to these different worlds the denizens of these different worlds and i was just like i don't believe in any of this so i'm gonna skim so there was that. Then we get into the section, which is basically what I thought the whole book was going to be like, but it's chapter 10. It made me wade through a lot of stuff that was very similar to Wicker and other books that I'd already read, and also stuff that didn't really apply to me, to get to chapter 10, where we finally started talking about the land, about nature, about the resources that went into witchcraft. And no matter how little we know about like folk practices and traditions and stuff, we know that people use natural things and plants and things to make charms and poppets and stuff because we found these things buried in the walls of houses and those people may not have been witches they may have even been christians but they were performing these acts of folk magic and this is what i was interested in creating magic not from vis visualization not from raising energy or interdimensional mental travel but from bringing together a collection of objects which had a feeling of importance a feeling of magical energy and creating something from them. Chapter 10, page 141. So we learn a little bit about bioregionalism, which is basically like learning about your own environment, which is incredibly important and something that I talked about when I was making my herbiary. Get a book about stuff near you, research it, cut it up, stick it all back together, make your own little book of ingredients of stuff that is around you, and I promise you, it will not be wasted effort. It's incredibly important. Then we learn a little bit about the spirits of place, which, again, these are things that I've... that don't necessarily call the same things that they're calling them, and I don't necessarily experience them in the same way, but I had some experience of this, so that was pretty interesting as well. And then we get into discussions of plants, animals, stones, talking about... Uh, using native plants and stones and things as opposed to like uh, crystals and herbs and animal bits sourced from god knows where and i really liked the section on page 155 about determining the correspondences of plants if you couldn't find them magically i was able to find most of the ones in my herbiary just existing online but i definitely use this method without having read this book to kind of work out what to do with things that I didn't find anything about online, and that is this. There are four main methods that are most effective in determining a plant's magical correspondences or associated virtues. The first is to investigate any existing folklore regarding the plant, which may inform you on how to use it in your workings. For example, roses have long said to be sacred to the goddess Aphrodite, therefore they are commonly used in love spells. To further illustrate, um, consider how a herb has been associated with the underworld in mythology could be used in rituals for contacting the dead, etc. The second way a plant's virtues can be identified is based on its physical appearance and nature. Plants with thorns, for instance, might be associated with powers of protection due to the way those thorns work as a defence mechanism to keep the plants safe from harm. The third way we can establish the magical use of a plant is based on what type of effect it has on the human body, so like talking about the medicinal uses. The scent of lavender is very calming and therefore the plant can be used in spells for peace and healing. Pepper on the other hand is irritating to the eyes and sinuses and therefore would make a great ingredient for a hex. 
And then the fourth most straightforward method for determining a plant's magical correspondence is to ask the land whites. Um, that's another word I can't pronounce. And specifically the one who dwells within the plant itself. So like connecting to its magical energy. I did not do that one. But if you look at like the medicinal uses of plants and what that plant is like, like if it's a creeper plant uh, that climbs up everything and snarls everything up, great for use in binding. If it's a plant that has great big flowers or strongly sweet smelling flowers that attracts lots of bees and pollinators, it's going to be great for attraction, love magic, things like that. Um, if it's like obviously poisonous and horrible and thorny and prickly, that's for use in like bad things like hexing and cursing. Um, and for use in like defence and things like that, you could pick plants that are commonly used in like hedges for protecting properties. So that's very interesting. I enjoyed reading about that. They also take this concept to stones um, and talk about how you should use like local stones, which is something I definitely want to get into a little bit more. It gives a kind of rough guide on colour theory of just basically, you know, you can use any green stone for this. Um, and things like that. I really want to get more into using natural stones. There's a lot of flint around here and you can use flint for a lot of stuff but obviously it's traditionally been used for like knives and arrowheads. I think it would make a really good like protection stone as well as a good one for like hexing um, and warding. So I'm gonna get more into that. Then there's stuff about animals using animal bits. It says that you know, don't kill animals, look at the law, that kind of thing. And then we get into everyone's favourite portion of the books about witchcraft, the Wheel of the Year, which is a section that I dread getting to in books because I don't really do the Wheel of the Year. But I was kind of looking forward to it in this one because I wanted to see, you know, how can we re rework the Wheel of the Year? Why are we looking at the Wheel of the Year? How does it work in traditional witchcraft? If you're hoping for anything other than what it's like in Wicca. You're going to be a bit disappointed, my friends, because that's basically exactly what it is. Um, so basically we learn the origins of the Wheel of the Year, which are put down to uh, Gardner again, influenced by Margaret Murray, uh, and then they added in the solstices, that's the word that I'm looking for, and the like Celtic fire festivals. So you've got like Samhain, Beltane, etc, etc. Um, but then it, it's basically just like... They decided that the Wheel of the Year was a thing, and it's like, cool, but why are we still using it in traditional witchcraft if you're saying that it was basically made up by Gardner? There is no real answer to that. It's basically just talking about how it doesn't always line up with the seasons where you personally live, which is something that they talk about in Wiccan books all the time because they want to sell them widely. So it's like, obviously not everyone's Yule is going to be in winter. On the other side of the world, it's going to be in summer. But it doesn't really address why are we celebrating these celebrations that have been put on this wheel by the creator of Wicca, even if he says like, oh yeah, they were related to stuff that happened years ago. That might not even be the case. And, and why are we were, like following them now? Uh, so basically reimagining the wheel of the year comes down to observing your own weather patterns and working out, you know, what you want to celebrate at what time, which I fully agree with. If you want to celebrate the those times, but those would be more seasonal. That wouldn't be like a wheel. That would be like four things. 
And then it says on page 175, some people are put off by the theme of agricultural fertility that is often attributed to the Sabbath, viewing it as obsolete given that many of us are no longer directly dependent on farming for survival. Which is something that I've said tongue-in-cheek before, you know, I'm not a farmer. People have actually gotten annoyed with me about saying this, and they're like, oh, I don't know why you would say that you don't celebrate these Sabbaths. It's like, well, you, you don't have to. No one comes and makes you. You know, there's plenty of Christians out there who don't celebrate Christmas. There was a whole thing where they banned Christmas in the UK for quite a while. But there we go. Um, but then the rest of that paragraph is basically just like, you should celebrate them anyway, because we all rely on the land still in one way or another. And even if you're not a farmer, some people are still growing food that you're going to eat. And that, that's that's sort of the same. And then at the end of the paragraph, it says, even if we aren't planting crops or attending baby animals, we can still feel the energetic pull towards new beginnings and personal growth during this time of year. Yes, you can. You can definitely feel like, you know, there's a spring cleaning thing for a reason. Different seasons feel different energies. But my issue is that that energy doesn't necessarily translate into celebrating eight quite samey festivals throughout the year. Which, again, if you're kind of going back to like pre-Wiccan burning times times i don't think people will be getting together to have these celebrations in the same way that we're having them now like they've become christian celebrations for one thing uh, and two it's like a lot of the pagan stuff has been like changed and warped and we don't really know what the tradition is and even if i wanted to develop a new tradition i probably still wouldn't want to celebrate eight things a year by myself that don't really have a huge amount of personal significance to me so i felt like the book was just being like do it anyway, even though you don't want to. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm okay, thanks. I mean, I'll, I'll maybe go out and be like, oh, cool, it's, it's spring now, that's exciting, I should do some jobs in the garden. Or, oh, it's autumn, fluffy sock season. But I'm not going to sit down and do eight different <laughs> rituals a year, which are basically just the same ritual eight times. Um, just because... Oh, yeah, your forebears did it. Because that seems to be in direct contravention to what we talked about at the beginning. If a tradition doesn't have to be going for a long time to be important, it follows that just because something's been going a long time doesn't mean you have to do it. So, I'm not gonna, and you can't make me. Then we came down to, like, seasons, weather, and planets. The planets thing also gave me pause because it talks about how, like, um, Uranus, Neptune and Pluto weren't discovered until 1781, 1846 and 1930. Um, and then it talks about, you know, planets and their movements and how these affect your magic. And I'm like, would lay people practicing like half magic at home, like traditional witchcraft type magic, know what the planets were doing? Like they know what the moon was doing because you can see that with your naked eyes. Ditto the sun, you can definitely tell when it's daytime. You can see the rhythms of the seasons. Can you see Jupiter in its seventh house? I don't think you can. Um, and obviously, again, there's kind of that get out of jail free card from the introduction where it's like, you know, we're not just devoted to the old traditions. But if you're going to be adding things in willy nilly, then basically what you're doing is Wicca. You're just incorporating a lot of different magical things together with some old timey things and that is Wicca. I think what I'm looking for is a book which is a slight, which is more flexible 
and I, I know that I'm kind of contradicting myself here, but I want it to be more flexible and more more ecstatic and inventive and personal, which is, you know, how people came to witchcraft. They weren't, like, teaching it at, like, proto-Hogwarts. People coming to it themselves and making up their own rules. But I also don't want it to be sort of polluted by more modern metaphysical concepts. Like, I don't want to be reading a book about traditional witchcraft and then say, oh, okay, go get a piece of Morganite and some dragon's blood resin and make sure that Saturn is doing this. And it's like, okay, but this has nothing to do with what I'm interested in. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be pure, but I want it to be more in the spirit in which it was intended, I'm guessing is kind of what I mean. And then at the end of the book, we have the usual, like, reflect on the contents of the book and then do this um, ritual to dedicate yourself, which I'm not going to do because I'm just reading a book for information. Like, no other non-fiction books do this. You don't get to the end of, like, a recipe book and it's like, here is your application to Cordon Bleu School. Fill it in. It just feels weird to me that they're like, well, you read this one book dedicate yourself now. It's like, no, I, I want to read around a bit more, thanks. Bye. So I've been a little bit glib on that book, <laughs> um, but there were sections of it that were really good. I've earmarked some of the like recipes. There's little recipes and sections on how to make like uh, incense and uh, non-toxic flying ointment and various interesting things that I think, you know, I'm going to add to my book of shadows and years later. I always write down what book I got them from as well in case I ever need to like refer back to it and also so that I don't think it's something that I made up because I am prone to do that. Um, so there is a lot of interesting information there. I think it's a good starting point but it does feel, and I don't want this to sound too negative, heavily tainted by Wicker. And I don't think Wicker is a bad thing. Obviously I was like doing it for a long time but if you go looking for like a book on Italian cookery and then you sit down and read it and you're like, this is just telling me how to make macaroni, cheese and pepperoni pizza. And then you check and the author's American. You're not saying that American food is bad, although I do say that a lot, but it's just not what you were hoping for. It's not the kind of purer specific version that you were looking for. And I do feel like this is that same thing, it is traditional witchcraft, but it's being viewed for a very Wiccan lens, and a lot of the stuff in it isn't, like, sourced back to anything other than Gardner or people that he taught and then went off and did their own thing for a bit, uh, and, you know, fiction books and, and stuff that inspire Gardner, so I'm going to keep looking for a, a different book to read, but I do think this one is pretty comprehensively good for an introduction just introducing you to different concepts and different ideas about specifically working with the land chapter 10 is great I would buy the book just for that um yeah I would definitely be looking for some other stuff to take this introduction further because the book is just an introduction it says that it's an introduction it's not purporting to be you know the definitive guide so going to read a little bit more further it's definitely something I'm really interested in and I'm just going to do what I always do which is work out what works for me and work out what doesn't and that's what people have been doing forever I hope you've enjoyed this review which ran on way too long and uh, if you'd like to recommend some books to me please do get in touch you can do so on twitter on instagram you can get in touch via the comments on the youtube version of the podcast you can email me although I check that increasingly sporadically um, so I might not get to it for a while, but I will eventually see it. 
And that's all that matters. And in the meantime, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye!